Well, we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 tonight, where Paul calls Timothy to be nourished. After that pattern of Psalm 1, to be nourished like that tree set by the river. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we continue in the first of the three pastoral epistles, as Paul is exhorting Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, with great love and concern for Timothy, and with great love and concern for the Ephesian saints who will be ministered to by Timothy and who, it seems, are expected to overhear this letter. 1 Timothy 4, tonight we look at verses 6 through 10. I'd like to read beginning at verse 1. 1 Timothy 4 at verse 1, God's holy word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." Here's our focus, verse 6 and following. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Let's bow our heads together before our God. Our Father in heaven, we do not come presuming to be able to preach rightly or receive rightly your word. It is your word and we are dull to it apart from the working of your spirit. We're prone to misinterpret, to twist, to misapply, to ignore. We pray, Lord, that you'd awaken our hearts by your word, that you would present your truth to us in the power of your spirit nourishing our lives, shaping and transforming them by the voice of the living God who spoke this world into creation. Send among us, we pray, Christ, the word of God, and grant us your help for your glory and praise among your people. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1994, Os Guinness came out with a book called Fit Bodies, comma, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. And he lamented in these words, American evangelicals in the last generation have simultaneously toned up their bodies and dumbed down their minds. And he was drawing clearly a contrast between the craze for physical fitness and at the same time the lack of rigor and discipline 
in thinking. And he was drawing a criticism to the church, to evangelicals. He was putting his finger on a misplaced emphasis that for all of the all of the rigor, all of the exertion, all of the effort given to healthy eating and the struggles to be in shape, somehow when it came to thinking, in many places, among many Christians, among many congregations, there, there wasn't a lot of discipline or energy given to thinking. Well, long before Osginus wrote his book, the Apostle Paul also drew a contrast Not exactly the same, but along similar lines. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Exercise yourself towards godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, now and future. Perhaps we've never needed to hear that word of the Apostle Paul more than in our day and age. There is also in our culture a craze for physical fitness. We've all seeing the the great amount of literature and videos about health and healthy eating and about diets and about physical fitness. We've all tried different things. Maybe we've failed at times. Maybe we've failed most of the time. But we've seen this great craze in our culture for caring for the body, for caring for the body. And yet when we compare the emphasis and the energy and the expectations regarding the body in comparison to the care for the soul. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? Our culture is out of sync with what really matters. And God, because he loves his people, he comes to us in his word as he writes to Timothy here, and he calls us to pursue godliness as the greater thing. We want to consider that tonight. To first of all, see the surpassing value of godliness. It's far greater than anything else. And then to consider the demanding rigor or the discipline in the pursuit of godliness. So those two points. First of all, let's look at the the value of godliness. I'd like to begin really at the middle of our text and to look at the front part of our text in the second point. But the Apostle Paul is, is calling us to see the importance of godliness. You know, we as Christians, we're often in the danger of of overvaluing the wrong things and undervaluing the most important things. I remember at college, I spent three years living on the same, in the same dorm, on the same floor, second bells, and the way you enter second bells is through the game rooms. There was the pool table, and there was the foosball table, and, and it was curious to me from the start that, that there were some guys who were always in the game room. When you went to class, when you came back from class, when you went to lunch, when you came back from lunch, it seemed like there were certain guys who were always on that pool table. And I remember walking through there one day, and I heard an upperclassman in his African accent say, they major in the minors. They're majoring in the minors. And, and all at once it sort of crystallized for me. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? In a place where people are always, always asking you, what are, what are you majoring and What are you majoring And There's a certain group of men who, when they get all done, will probably have to say, I majored in pool. I spent thousands of dollars a year to play pool. But you see, we do that sometimes in our own lives, don't we? We spend so much time and so much effort in things that, in the end, might not matter a great deal. Now, the Apostle Paul was not against physical exercise. He says it's of some value. Bodily exercise profits a little. The Apostle Paul seems to be one who actually 
I don't know if he was an amateur sportsman or he, he had an interest in these things. He writes about running races, track and field. He writes about boxing. He, he writes about wrestling. He uses all these words from the athletic scene of that day as one who's very much attuned to what this is about. He knows, he writes to Timothy, he's a young man. Timothy needs exercise. He needs to eat healthy. He needs to enjoy some of these things. Paul had already condemned the aesthetic people in the previous verses who forbade certain foods, forbade marriage, all these good things of God's creation. And God himself, of course, is not against athletics and games and exercise. He gave us bodies. He made us to run and jump. It's a wonderful thing. Young people involved in sports, it's often a good thing for developing teamwork and self-discipline and setting goals and all these things for recreation. And we're to be good stewards with our bodies. And yet, as good as it all is, Paul draws a contrast between the value of physical training and the value of godliness. Physical exercise is limited in its benefits, but he says godliness is unlimited. It's profitable for all things. It has promise for the present life. It has promise for the future. Godliness is different. Paul lived in a culture that was overly excited about athletics. was heavily invested in the gymnasium. And yet, for all of the benefits of exercise, how great were they? Men might develop muscles and strength, a certain physical physique. They might gain an endurance or health. They might train to win a prize in a wrestling match or in a race. But to be sold out to those things, if that's the primary thing in life, where does it leave you? Our culture is often sold out, right? Sports celebrities, they rise to the top of our culture. Great deals invested in terms of our bodies. When these become the main things, then they betray the reality that that people are living as if only what you can see with your eyes is what matters, right? A very materialistic worldview. That there's nothing invisible that matters. The only thing that matters is what's right in front of you. This life is all there is, right? And so much of our culture is giving away its own worldview by its fanaticism for health and for working out and so forth. But Paul says the benefits of godliness, the unseen things, are eternal. Now, what is godliness? What is godliness? There's a a word, godliness or godliness, used some 15 times in the New Testament, but nine of the occurrences are in this letter, 1 Timothy. Paul is very concerned here about godliness. And he's very concerned that the church's minister be godly. That he be godly. The word means respect or reverence. It was used outside the Bible to speak of of respect or reverence for civil authorities and for parents and so forth. But in the Bible, the word is used about respect and reverence for God. Or reverence mingled with love as it's been defined. That's what godliness is. Reverence mingled with love. It's to know God. It's to delight in God. It's to obey God. It's to be dedicated to God. Godliness is to tremble before the Lord and to cling to the Lord. Godliness is the worship of God with our whole life. Somebody in adult Sunday school this morning said that 
talked about that we could worship God in all of life. Well, that's really what this is about. The worship of God in all of life. Godliness, someone has said, is really the Copernican revolution, isn't it? Remember that, how four or five hundred years ago we went from this geocentric paradigm of the universe with the earth at the center to being transformed, to understanding the sun at the center. And, and so it is that we come into the world as those who are self-centered. Everything revolves around me. It's about me. And when Christ takes hold of our heart, then we say everything is about God. It's all about him. This is his world. And I was made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We come into the world seeking to flee God, but when we're transformed by the Spirit, then we say with David, I've set the Lord always before me. I live quorum Deo in the face, before the face of God. And so godliness is that great reconstruction project. We who are made in the image of God, for God, to know God and to love God. And through the fall into sin, we... We were so devastated. Think of the buildings in Ukraine blown up and holes in them, laid waste. But, but the work of Christ is to rebuild and to restore, to make us again like our God. Well, what are the benefits of godliness that the Apostle Paul would contrast with the limited benefits of bodily exercise? Bodily exercise, as we said, could give you physical health. It can be a good form of recreation. It could cause you to win a prize in a competition. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. In Paul's day, that's what it was. You didn't get a gold medal. You got the laurel wreath put over your head. The wreath was the prize for winning the race. And he says they train to get the wreath, the perishable wreath, made of flowers that will soon fade away, but we do it for an imperishable, he says. But what are these imperishable benefits of godliness? Well, they include knowing God, right? Knowing his, his peace, knowing his fellowship, knowing his joy. Godliness, growing in godliness, is closer intimacy with God. It's, it's coming to know more deeply the assurance that he is mine and I am his. It's, it's learning to be content in all circumstances. John Calvin said that godliness is the perfection of all happiness. He writes, it is the beginning of happiness in this life. It alone makes us happy and without it we are very miserable for God testifies that even in this life, he will be our father. Godliness is to, is to know yourself as a son or daughter of the father. To know his pleasure in you, to know his love for you, to know his protection and care and the future he has for you. All the joys that we have in God in this life are so many attractions and allurements for the future life when we will know God perfectly. And as Philip Reichen puts it, godliness is the one thing you can take with you. Growth in godly character isn't lost. Godliness goes with you to the next life. There's something glorious, isn't there, in being able to say, we sang the poetic version of Psalm 73, but 
But you know the words the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Godliness, to know God as your happiness. And it is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Sometimes you see an elderly saint knowing they're going home. They don't have much, maybe, by, by way of the world's standards, don't have a lot of riches. But they have the thing that matters. Reminds me of an article I read about of, of people who bought an ottoman at a garage sale, footstool, upholstered footstool, you know. And, and when they got it home, it was, well, it was quite heavy. When they got it home, they decided to reupholster it, or I don't know if it was so heavy, but somehow they got into looking into it and found it was stashed with cash. So the estate sale, for the one who had died, she passed away and her children putting everything up for sale, had no idea that she had loaded the ottoman with all this money. Nobody knew what she really had. It's that way for the godly saying, if, if the world fails to recognize, thinks the person's just poor and impoverished, they haven't much, and yet to have godliness, to know God, to be close to God, this is the reality, the riches of happiness. And the Apostle Paul says, as soon as he says that, that godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, that he says in verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And he uses that language he'd used earlier. And he, in doing that, is saying, this is something you need to hold on to, you need to believe, you need to say it to yourself. Maybe this was a saying that was common Maybe this is a saying that Christians were using to try to remind themselves in their sports-crazed culture that godliness matters. But whatever the case, Paul's saying, you need to get a hold of this. You need to believe this. You need to see this proven in your own life. It needs to be constantly affirmed because the unbelievers are contradicting it by their lives. And you're being tempted to become worldly yourselves every day, to be sucked into that materialistic view of the universe. And even more than that, it's a strange thing, but godliness doesn't always appear to be so worthwhile. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see why you need to say to yourself, this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of acceptance. You see why Paul needs to say that to Timothy, because we're prone to forget it when godliness actually might lead to more conflict in your life. Godliness might make it more difficult to get along with the relatives. Godliness might make it more likely that you're despised at work. Godliness doesn't always bring about these outward benefits that we're so hoping for. Paul says, don't judge by that. The eye of faith knows that physical freedom or a booming business or everyone liking you are not the ultimate marks of God's blessing. But what is? A clear conscience. Joy in the Lord. Assurance of salvation. Communion with God through Jesus Christ, your Savior. That is riches. So the question that comes out of this first point then is the question, have I recognized the surpassing value of godliness? 
of all the things that I long for and all the things that I seek, is, is this at the top of my list? I would to be godly, to have reverence and love for the Lord, to know him more and more. It's a sad thing, you know, if we picture the Christian religion as just sort of a ticket to heaven. If I got my ticket, I'm good to go. Flew back from Mid-America meetings this week, you know, and if you have a, a plane ticket, you just sit there and wait. I actually wanted more leg room, so I wasn't sitting and waiting. I was watching that counter to see when somebody would come there so I could say, can I get a seat with more leg room? And for the first time in a long time, I got one for free. But after I got the ticket, I just sat there. And some people look at salvation that way. It's just the ticket into heaven. If I got the ticket, I just sit there. I got all I need. I'm not going to hell. But if the gospel really takes a hold of us, and we recognize that salvation is to know God and eternity with God, we don't say, I just got my ticket, now I'll get on with all the things I want to do. We say, I want to know this God. I want to be more like him. I want to draw closer to him. No, that doesn't always come naturally, does it? And so the Lord's calling us by this word. He's, he's calling us to work at believing this. This is worthy of all acceptance. Put your mind around this. Pray that God would grant you the heart for this to recognize that this is what matters in life. Godliness. That God is my great reward. God is my happiness. And if it doesn't resonate with us at all, if it's something utterly foreign, well, then we don't really know the gospel. When we need to pray, God would give us a new heart. We need to be convicted of our sin and experience the wonder of grace. That the God we used to run from now becomes the very object of our love and affection. The surpassing value of godliness. But then secondly tonight, let's consider the demanding discipline or rigor of godliness. The Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 7, exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise yourself. The goal is godliness. The way is exertion. That's how it was, right, in terms of athletics, bodily exercise. But so it is here. The, the goal is godliness. Now work at it, he says to Timothy. Paul condemns here in the book of Colossians those who, who through a, a foolish self-denial show a certain kind of rigor. You can't get married, you can't eat that, you have to keep certain holy days, blah, blah, blah. Paul says that doesn't lead to godliness. Read Colossians. He says that, that doesn't lead to godliness. It's useless, those man-made rules. But there is a rigor that's appropriate. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
It's that language of a kind of strictness or severity in which Paul deals with himself to discipline himself to godliness. What does this rigor of godliness look like? Well, I think we could summarize our text by saying it's three things. It's diet, exercise, and rest. First of all, it's the proper diet. Notice at verse 6, the apostle says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Everybody knows that when it comes to being in shape or pursuing athletic goals, that what you eat matters. Paul says to Timothy, you need to feed on the word. Begins here in verse 6 with instructing the brethren in these things. Preach the truth, but then he, he quickly says that you need to be nourished in the words of faith. You're not, Timothy, you're not merely a conduit who parrots the things I've told you. You are to feed on the very word you're proclaiming. You're to study and know and believe that word yourself. You are not just to pass it on, but you are to take it in and digest it and be nourished by it. It's very true for a minister. Paul says you need to do this if you're going to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful phrase too, by the way, isn't it? Ministers are tempted to want to be great ministers. God wants good ministers, godly ministers. And good ministers are ones who study the word, are careful with the word. And it is a strange thing here, as we think about comparisons, that, that our investment in studying many things in this world Involves a great deal of time and effort, but somehow when it comes to the study of the scriptures, there's often this expectation that if it's not instantly obvious to me what it means and how applicable it is, then then maybe it's not worth studying. I heard a little radio commercial the other day for a church, which the minister gave a little devotional, I guess, a word of exhortation about what you should do was, a, I think, a pretty frivolous use of Scripture. And then was followed up with an invitation to the church. And I think he used four different words to say how practical and relevant and all this the messages would be. I think a presentation like that sort of feeds into this idea that if there's any book that you don't need to invest any time in, it's this book. Well, this is a great word about a great God. And we are, by nature, blind and foolish sinners. Do we have the right to expect that we drop this book open and instantly it's all light and clarity? It's all so simple. Peter said that there's some things in Paul that are hard to understand. And that was not a mark against the word. This is a book that requires some energy. Requires some patience. It's a huge book, 66 books. And it's a glorious word. We ought to work at the study of Scripture, meditating upon God's Word. The Bible is, as somebody's called it, it's God's autobiography. 
If you want to be like God, if you want to be godly, then you ought to read the book about God. We need a good diet. We need to be nourished in the word. But of course, a good diet is not just saying yes, but a good diet, as we all know, is saying no. And that's almost the harder part, isn't it? It's one thing to say yes to vegetables. It's sure another thing to say no, no, no to junk food. And yet that's what Paul tells Timothy to do, doesn't he? Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables. Earlier, Paul, in chapter 1, verse 4, had warned about fables and endless genealogies. Remember these, these Jewish anecdotes? They made up stories about people in the Bible and invented ways in which they were related and their genealogies and had all these myths. Paul says, rubbish, don't feed on that. It will not nourish your soul. And who knows what the Apostle Paul would say about the great swath of so-called Christian literature today. That is only psychology written under a Bible verse. There's only the twisting of scripture to make man's points. There's only speculations about what I think heaven is going to be. There's only foolish prophecies about the future that no man has a right to make. But presented as Christian literature. Rubbish. Reject it, Paul says. Say no to it. Because like junk food, it deceives you, it tastes good, it for a moment feels good, but then it weighs you down and makes you sick, and the calories are worthless for the nourishing of your body. You need a diet of the Word. It's good to be together on Sunday nights and to study the Word. The Word is our life. The Word is where God reveals Himself to us. But we need also, secondly, not just diet, but we need exercise, or we could say exertion. It might be interesting to you to know that in Greek, the words Paul uses here to speak about exercise at the end of verse 7 and in verse 8 are the words gymnazo and gymnasia, from which we get the word gymnasium. Now, gymnasium sounds like an old word, right? When I hear gymnasium, I think of the 1930s and guys with some very short basketball shorts on standing lined up in the gym court in some old gym. But, but when I say gym membership, that's very modern, right? Did you get a gym membership? Most well, of what Paul's talking about. They had the gymnasium. They had the gym membership in Paul's day. There were young men in Ephesus who were being trained with rigor to compete in the games that were connected to the pagan festivals. And all throughout the Greek and Roman world, there were Olympic-type games that were spectacular, of great importance, attended by great crowds. Men with great physique, muscle, nice bodies, as they'd say today. Men who were strong, men who were fit, men who were athletic. This was something that was valued and prized. But everybody knew it came with work. Oh, certainly some have some of this naturally, but athletes train and they train. And when Paul says now that you need to gymnazo, you need to exercise Timothy, he's asking Timothy to remember the kind of exertion and effort that's put forward by the men in the gym.
if we have the thought oftentimes that the Bible should be instantly easy to understand, we often have the thought that sanctification is what God will do. I'll sit here and wait. When he makes me holy, he makes me holy. But that's not what the word says. Paul tells Timothy to exercise himself towards godliness. It's a lost pursuit, maybe, huh? We know the phrase, no pain, no gain. But do we apply that to the growth of our soul? Neil Postman wrote that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Sometimes that's really where we're at, isn't it, in terms of spiritual pursuits. Spiritual discipline seems like something lost long ago in the the monasteries or something that belongs to those who are in cults and who, with great rigor, say no to all these things and live some austere life. But there is a godly exertion that we're called to. Exercise yourself towards godliness. It might be actually kind of a sad thing for us at times to compare the kind of energy we put out in high school sports to... The amount of energy we put out in prayer or in worship. Worship is often approached, isn't it, as an amusement, as an entertainment. But the idea that I come to gather with God's people to exert myself in worship, to exercise myself towards godliness, it's not all the way, not always how we feel as we sit in a soft chair, is it? But this is what the Lord Jesus says to us. What does he have in mind in terms of the exercise? Well, study the word we mentioned. I think prayer, something we could learn to labor at more and more. Worship, making use of the means of grace. How about confessing our sin? We don't always, with great rigor, try to go through and think of the ways we've sinned against God. But sometimes, maybe oftentimes, it's just God forgive our sins. And we call it good. But what if we pursued a bit more deeply to ask, Lord, how have I sinned? Where have I sinned? Help me to see how deep it is, how wrong it is. We talk about the exercise of serving others, Christian service. We talk about the exercise of what we read in Colossians 3 this morning of putting off, putting to death and putting on. Exercise yourself towards godliness. But, but finally, not just diet and exercise, but we need rest. And that brings us to verse 10. Verse 10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. The pursuit we're called to tonight is is not one that's based in, rooted upon, or depends upon human effort. It is one that makes use of human effort. Sanctification is a process, growth and holiness, in which God uses human effort. But our comfort is this, that we have a living God who's at work in us, right? That's the comfort. And that's comforting when you think about all the the diets that make promises and all the exercise equipment. They always invent something new, right? What else would they put on at late-night commercials if it wasn't a new exercise device with a money-back guarantee, 
But Paul says this is your guarantee as you exercise yourself towards godliness. That you serve a living God who guarantees it will be worthwhile. Paul himself has endured great things, right? Poverty and nakedness and hunger and banishments, imprisonment, scourging, inconveniences, displeasure, shipwrecks. But in the hands of God, even all of that tends toward his profit. God is at work. There is a living God. There's a lot of false gods. And there's a lot of people serving false gods, and sometimes those serving false gods are more energetic and more disciplined than we are. But guess what? Because their God is dead, all they can expect is to become like their God and to become spiritually shriveled and dead. But we serve the living God, who's the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. There's a lot of ink spilled over that verse What does it mean that he's a savior of all men? Well, everyone who's not a universalist does not believe that it's talking about God bringing everybody to heaven. So what does it mean? Well, many have taken it to mean to think of the first use, savior of all men, to be the broad way in which God's the benefactor, the God of goodness, the preserver of life, To all men, he gives rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, as Paul said. He gives life and breath and all things, Acts 14 and Acts 17. That may be the case, that first he's saying he's a savior of all men in a broad sense. He preserves physical life, but then he's especially the savior of those who believe. But some more recent studies have shown that the word especially, as it's translated here, is actually a word in Greek that at times means something like more precisely, or that is. So you could translate it, God is the Savior of all men, that is, of those who believe. More precisely, of those who believe. The point then being that God is the Savior of his people. And Paul's saying we, we both labor and suffer reproach. We give ourselves to the pursuit of godliness. Or he might be speaking here of the mission enterprise. We are working and we are toiling and we are suffering to bring others to become godly. Because we trust in the living God, who's a true Savior. And you see, that's the kind of rest you need to have. As you give yourself to this, the hope is not, I'm going to do it. I can overcome. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be victorious. But the hope is God's at work, and he's a living God, filled with mercy towards me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, remember, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works, God who's at work in you. We labor and we struggle and we suffer and we press on because we have a living God. And this living God is full of grace towards us through Jesus Christ. Because Christ bore our sin, he took away our guilt, he reconciled us to God. Now our creator who made us for himself, the living God, has our lives, our hearts in his hand. And as we cry out to him, Lord help me, as we give ourselves with exertion to pursue godliness, this is our hope that God will work it in us. 
He's the great sanctifying spirit who's pleased to make us holy as he is holy. He's Jesus Christ who, as Hebrews said, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that the most holy human being learned obedience? Not because he had sin, but because there's provision for growth in the way God creates us. And we can grow in obedience. Jesus grew in obedience so he had no sin. How much more we who have sinned might we grow in godliness? And the one to lead us in that is God our Savior. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the sanctifying Holy Spirit. What a blessing that the Lord doesn't leave us to the worldliness of our culture, to think that the physical is all there is. But he says there's something greater. I summon you to draw near to me, to be transformed after the pattern of your God, to grow in recognizing the glory and the greatness of your God, in loving him more deeply, in dedicating your life to him more wholly. Exercise yourself towards godliness because the living God is at work within you. Brothers and sisters, this is a great word. It's a glorious word. What a prospect that we can grow in godliness, a godliness that will never be taken from us. Let's look at our lives tonight and reconsider the investment of our energy, ask ourselves whether we're being disciplined and whether we believe that God will, as he promises, to use that pursuit dedicated to him to grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And may it be in a culture that every day suggests that this is all there is, that we, as we enjoy the physical that God has made, have our eye always on the eternal. Godliness, having promise for this life and for the life which is to come. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you don't leave us to ourselves or to the world or to the evil one. We thank you for your instruction that is robust and clear and life-giving. And we do, Father, we long to be more godly, to be more holy, to be more fit for your fellowship. And we confess, O oh Lord, we are often lackadaisical and careless. And we forget, O oh Lord, the pursuit to which you've called us. We pray that you would fill us with the energy of your spirit, with the commitment to follow Christ, the one who learned obedience. And that we, Lord, by your grace, might grow up into Christ Jesus, appreciating more and more what he has done for us and wanting more and more to be transformed into the image of our Savior. In Jesus' name, we ask these things, Father. Will you hear us? Amen.